Welcome to Talking About Methods. In the latest edition of our Talking About Methods series, I'm going to talk to Sally Sheldon about her biography of the Abortion Act. So let me start by introducing her. Before moving to her current post at the University of Bristol, Professor Sally Sheldon studied at the Universities of Kent and Bordeaux and the European University Institute. She also taught at the Universities of Kiel and Kent. Sally is a co-editor of the pioneering Law in Context series, which is published by Cambridge University Press, and she's a long-standing member of the Editorial Board of Social and Legal Studies. She's also a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. So welcome Sally to the podcast and thank you so much for taking part. Could you start by telling our audience a little bit more about the sort of socio-legal work that you do? Thank you very much, Linda, for inviting me. And yes, I'm a health lawyer. I've written a lot on abortion law over the years. And I would say my methods have always been issue driven. So I start with a, an interest in a particular issue and then I look for methods and theoretical frames that help me to understand it, help me to answer the question I'm trying to answer. And that has taken me through applied ethical methodologies, feminist methodologies, and also socio legal methods. I've done a little bit of qualitative empirical work involving interviews. I've done a lot of desk-based research. More recently, I've been doing some archival work as well, and that's the work that's contributed to the biography of the Abortion Act that you just mentioned. That's great. Thanks so much. That's a really wonderful introduction. As you've alluded to, you've recently written a book which is called A Biography of the Abortion Act. So I wonder if you'd just tell us a little bit more about what motivated that work. I suppose the book came out of an interest that was motivated by bringing two things together. So firstly, there was my academic knowledge and understanding of abortion law and thinking about the statute itself. And then secondly, I had a lot of experience of working with that law in a very practical sense in that I was a trustee of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, which is a, the largest provider of abortion services in England and Wales. And there was this very interesting mismatch between what I could see on paper was a very restrictive piece of legislation. And yet what I was experiencing in practice, which was the ability of BPAS to offer high quality abortion services pretty much on request in early pregnancy for resident women. So those things just didn't seem to fit together at all. And the contrast or the conflict I was experiencing was really a classic socio-legal one of the difference between law on the books and law in practice. But I was also interested in thinking about and understanding how that happened over time. So how we'd ended up with what looked like a very restrictive piece of legislation being interpreted in this very liberal, very permissive way. And that led me really to thinking about this in terms of biography. So the way that law requires meaning, which is a really classic socio-legal question, but a question it seemed to me that to answer properly, we also needed a historical analysis. We needed to be able to think about how that happened over time. So the biographical approach was really a way of trying to hold together those two things at once. What was the continuity in a law and what was the change in law over time? I think one of the things that's so interesting about the book as well is that it centres a statute, you know, and as socio-legal scholars, we sometimes run away from doctrine. I think what's so fabulous about it is that actually you centre the statute and then, as you suggest, do a classic socio-legal piece of work by putting it in a broader context and seeing it through a really different lens. 
I did worry about doing that as well, because what we tend to think with socio-legal work is that we should put people first. So we should foreground people and people's experience of law and people's understanding of law rather than actually the statute or the text of the law itself. But I hope that the way that the biographical approach works deals with some of the concerns with doing that, because the people are very much there in the story of the Abortion Act as well. It's interesting that you worried about that because in, in a way I think it's a sign of the maturity of sociolegal studies that we're not worried about going back and foregrounding the text but just saying that we're doing it differently. The pioneers of sociolegal studies really had to set themselves up as very different from doctrinal scholars and that often involved an abandoning of the text. I mean one of your former colleagues at Kent, Emily Gravham, is doing that amazing work on statutory drafting which I think is also a fascinating project. It's almost going back to the text but just doing it in a confident and much more dynamic analysis so I think that's interesting and I know we had chats about whether biography was the right word for this project at the early stages of it so perhaps we can come back to that I wonder if before we do that you could just tell us what you think the major themes that come out of the book are I mean I suppose the overarching theme is just that really basic socio-legal one of the difference between law on the books and law in practice and the book tries to trace how what that looks like in practice and how complicated and how messy that is and how, how many different people and different kinds of people are involved in giving meaning to a law. The wonderful thing about having the opportunity of writing a book length project on that is to be able to grapple with that in detail and to trace some of the ways in which that happens through. Law acquires meaning over time. That meaning is constantly evolving. It is complex. It is negotiated and disputed between a a wide range of actors. And actually not, not only the obvious actors. There are lawyers, there are government actors involved, but they're probably not at the forefront of the analysis in the book. Doctors, I'd written before about the Abortion Act and how it hands over control of abortion to doctors. Now, I still think that's true, but looking back at that early work now, it seems very reductive to me because actually medical authority and medical power itself is not a constant. It's changing all the time. And the meaning that doctors gave to the act was influenced by a whole wide range of other actors as well, including the women who were coming in and asking for abortion services. When the doctors were interpreting the legislation, that was never an abstract exercise in moral reasoning for them. It was profoundly influenced by women coming in and telling stories and talking about the reality of their lives and explaining why they couldn't carry on with the pregnancy. So messiness would be one of the themes, that this is a really complicated process and it's a process that you can't understand, I don't think, without that kind of detailed empirical study. The other group who've been really important in giving meaning to the Abortion Act have been campaigners. And in that sense, I hope that the book speaks to a trend in comparative work that's looked at English abortion law, particularly alongside US abortion law, and argued that in the US context, campaigners have been able to really restrict abortion rights and that's obviously true and that's that's particularly clearly true at the moment with the rolling back of Roe and Wade. However I think if you look beyond the letter of the formal law and look at offer this socio-legal analysis of how law is working in practice you can actually see that anti-abortion campaigners have played a really significant role in the the British the UK context as well in terms of putting issues onto the agenda in terms of slowing in innovations and service deliveries in terms of shaping the political debates that have given meaning to the legislation as well. So that's a very important theme in the book. 
So you've called it a biography. Perhaps we could just explore why you decided to use that word and what that involved. You've mentioned archival research, but I believe you also did some interviews as part of this project. So it's a sort of multi-method approach. Could you just take us through for our audience's sake, who might be just learning about these methods, what that involved, what you actually did to gather this data? It's interesting, Linda, you remember those early conversations about this approach. And I I was quite tentative about it when I started and quite nervous about it. And I've now got to the point where it's just completely obvious to me that this makes sense. So it'd be interesting to see if other people are convinced by that or not. Biography is a concept or an approach that's quite difficult to pin down anywhere. And it means a lot of different things to different people. And there's different traditions in biography. And I have, I suppose, picked the aspects of the biographical approach that make most sense to me in terms of the legal study. But if we take seriously that basic socio-legal insight that law is a living thing that acquires meaning in practice, then I think thinking about it in biographical terms makes a lot of intuitive sense. And the key thing that a biographical approach does for me is it forces us to think simultaneously about change and continuity in a law. So it forces us to think simultaneously about those twin facets of a law where you have written norms, which are the product of a particular historical moment and they enshrine the values or the realities of a particular historical moment. But they can only acquire meaning through interpretation, which is necessarily a contemporaneous activity, which will be inflected by shifting social contexts, personal values, which are changing over time, and a range of other factors. So that idea of changing continuity of taking one subject and studying it as it evolves over time, I would see as being the key to a biographical approach in terms of human biography. And that, to me, transfers very easily to to the study of law and that historical dimension, that study of change over time, I think adds something very interesting and not completely novel, but still relatively unusual to a socio-legal approach. So that's what I was trying to capture with it. It'll be interesting to see. I don't. I mean, I don't know if the rest of the world will be as convinced as I am, but I am very pleased as um, one of the set of authors have already written a biography, an edited collection that's a biography of another piece of legislation. And they've done it in quite a different way, actually, from the way I used biography. So I'm looking forward to seeing what other people make of that approach. I'm convinced, and I'm much more convinced than when we started having this conversation, actually, that notion of the bio being about the organic nature of law and the many different ways in which it's interpreted and that changes over time. That is really fascinating. So could you just tell us a little bit more about the archive that you were using and then the interviews that you were doing to supplement or complement the archival research? So I should say this is a co-authored book and I had the pleasure and benefit of having three co-authors who are trained historians and I've learned an enormous amount from them along the way. So they, Claire Parker and Jane O'Neill, who are two fantastic postdoctoral researchers who were working on the project, did the bulk of the archival research. They did. Occasionally I was allowed to go into an archive and I very swiftly lost myself down a rabbit hole because it's so interesting and so fascinating, I think, being able to do that work but they did most of it. 
and we used a range of archives. So probably the most important one for us was the Welcome Library, which has got some fantastic, very rich historical resources. A lot of resources that were gathered by pro-choice campaigners, the Abortion Law Reform Association and service providers, but other resources as well. We use the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists archive and obviously the National Archives at Kew as well. And we had a lot of government papers there. So probably about a dozen archives in total. And Jane and Claire did the majority of that work. The interviews we did were with people who had significant experience of working with the Abortion Act, of campaigning around the Abortion Act or offering services under the Abortion Act. And we deliberately picked people who had long experience. So people who had worked for, in some cases, more than five decades actually around the legislation. And we used those interviews partly to plug gaps with what we were finding in the archives to give us additional insights that we wouldn't have got from that material material to help us understand some of that material, maybe to decide what were the most interesting and profitable lines of inquiry in terms of what seemed important to them. And also, I suppose, to give some colour to that work. Because, I mean, the people we interviewed, I think, are absolutely amazing, actually. They had fantastic insights to offer to the research. And I hope that comes out in the book, actually. We do use quite a lot of that material in the book. And we are intending to lodge the interview recordings in Welcome as well, so other researchers will be able to get access to them in due course. That was going to be my next question. Where could people get access to the recordings? Because I think that's a real benefit of the outputs of the project, actually, that people can go and listen to the original voice in a somebody who's interested in oral history I think it's always it's great that people can go back and judge whether they think your interpretation of what was said is appropriate I think that's a really nice check on us as researchers as well that other people can reinterpret those interviews as they choose to could I ask you a little bit more Sally about how you actually recruited people for the interviews whether campaigners and other people that were involved were happy to give up their time for the project I'm conscious that we have a lot of early career academics who are probably listening to this podcast and doing interviews for the first time so I think it would be helpful for them to understand a little bit more about that process So I think in some ways the major challenge we had in recruitment was cutting down the list of who we could talk to and what's a reasonable number of people to speak to in the confines of a project and the time we had to do it. Once we'd drawn up our shortlist, we found that generally people were prepared to speak to us and people were very generous with their time. We had just one refusal of an interview and that was someone who has been a leading anti-abortion advocate and who was worried about the objectivity of the book given my previous writing on abortion. And that was unfortunate, I think. I mean, we have tried insofar as possible to offer an objective account and to be true to the archival resources we've studied and the interviews that we got. And obviously, we are not the best people to judge how well we've managed that. Readers will need to make that decision for themselves. I mean, it's true of almost all of the literature on abortion law. I mean, the previous books are generally written by someone who has been in some way involved in campaigning around it. And I mean, my assessment of those books is that some of them are much better at avoiding bias than others. But yes, readers will need to make their own judgment on that. That's great. Thank you. And the next question is quite an important question for this podcast series, because I think we're quite keen to normalise things that go wrong in the research process. There's a danger that people just see our polished articles and books and think that we wrote those very easily. I wonder if you could tell us what advice you'd give to a younger self about doing socio-legal work. 
I mean, well, sometimes when things go wrong, that can be productive as well. So there's serendipity. I think if I was starting again, I would have liked to have had some training in methods before I launched straight into my PhD. So I had the benefit of a degree from the University of Kent, where the faculty there were teaching socio-legal approaches. So we're teaching that law is needs to be understood in the social context and the social context is impacting on law and that law is representing particular political interests. They were teaching that a long time before most other law schools. And I had the benefit of that almost from my first undergraduate lecture. So that was fantastic. I didn't have any training in methods and I have tended to just stumble into different methods. So I think if I was starting again, I would advise myself to uh, do a master's programme in socio-legal methods and get that breadth of perspective that would let me make better informed choices. In particular, that would have really helped my PhD to have had that training before I started. And you've identified three texts which you think listeners would find useful if they were interested in doing something like a biography. And I wonder if you could just walk us through those texts and why you've chosen them. And obviously the first one is particularly good. I really, really struggled with this and I have slightly cheated in that two of my choices are edited collections because I couldn't force myself to limit it more. So the first suggestion, which is an absolutely fantastic collection, is an edited collection by you and David Sugarman on legal life writing and marginalised subjects. And that came out in the Journal of Law and Society in 2015, which was just at the point that we were thinking about this project and pulling it together. And that I included for two reasons. Firstly, I think that collection does offer a landmark in terms of trying to push legal biography into a slightly more interesting direction than just having these hagiographic accounts of the lives of the great and the good, so illustrious judges and so on. The idea that you can think of group biography, that you can think of the biographies of different subjects, so trial observers, that would be very interesting to bring that in. So that's one reason for including that. The second is I think it's really very rare to find good quality socio-legal work that takes historical analysis seriously. There's very few people who are doing that. You and David are in that number, Rosemary Atmuti also in that number, so that work was very influential I think in shaping the project in a very broad way. The second choice is also an edited collection. This was an edited collection thinking about object biography. And object biography was actually the most useful thing for us in terms of shaping how we would think about the biography of a law. And this collection doesn't represent the start of that approach in archaeology. I was, yeah, I should have said this is an archaeological approach. And that's probably not surprising because archaeology takes objects very seriously. So archaeologists have a lot of experience of trying to understand the role of a particular object or how it's been shaped by a particular context or what it's meant in that particular context. What this collection does is, starting from the insights of a writer called Igor Kopyov, it thinks about how objects acquire meaning over time and how that acquisition of meaning is then imprinted on the object in terms of it acquiring a pattern of use or whatever it is. And that seemed to me to offer a very interesting, useful way into thinking about law and how law can be shaped by these social contexts and acquire meaning over time. And that for a law, that would be in terms of amendments to it, in terms of doctrine, interpreting it and so on. So object biography, I found really useful and that collection I would recommend to anyone who's trying to understand what that's about and what it can offer. 
And the final text I suggested, I thought it would be useful also to include something on political biography, because again, that's an approach that is influential to how we thought about the biography of the Abortion Act. The text I've suggested is a paper by Ben Pimlott, who is a fantastic political biographer of Hugh Dalton and Harold Wilson, who defends the idea of biography and the utility of biography in a historical sense. One insight that he really foregrounds in that work that, again, we found very useful was this idea of the biography of one discrete subject as a window onto thinking about broader social changes. So, as Virginia Woolf put it, biography is the story of the stream as well as the fish. And the biography of the Abortion Act is a story of changing gender and family norms, changing institutional frameworks, changing nature of medical power and all of these other things. So the Pimlot piece, I think, is very useful just for really explaining how that works and why biography is a useful way of thinking about these broader social sweeps as well. So those are the three choices, but I did really struggle to pin it down to three because I was reading very widely to start off with when we were trying to work out the ambit of this approach. That's really helpful, Sally. Thanks so much. I didn't know the Gosden and Marshall. I'm going to go off and read that straight away because that sounds like it's going to be helpful in something I'm just about to do. And you've referred to Rose McMutty. Just to remind our listeners that we do also have a podcast by Rose McMutty about doing feminist legal history, which is a fabulous podcast that really nicely complements this one. We're also going to put the reference to your book that's about to be published. But could I just close by saying thank you so much. I've long been an admirer of your work and actually of your way of being an academic and it's been such a privilege to talk to you today thank you so much thank you again for inviting me Linda and I should also thank you for your help in shaping the project as a member of the advisory group we had a wonderful very supportive advisory group actually that might be a piece of advice for junior or less senior researchers as well just to surround yourself by supportive colleagues in that way Thanks so much for listening to this Talking About Methods session. If you'd like to see the list of publications that we referred to in the podcast, please go to frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk. If you have any ideas for a blog or a podcast, please do get in touch with Linda Mulcahy at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies. Thanks again. Bye.